On today's show, I'm going to be talking with Dave J. Gerstein, a.k.a. The Sound of Monday. They've got this really fun but also socially appropriate song called Hey Inconsiderate. What's socially appropriate? <laughs> or maybe social commentary. I think it addresses maybe a, a lot of antisocial behavior that we all encounter, but he does it with such a fun, boppy beat. You also want to just get up and dance to it. We're going to talk about that, his upcoming EP, and much more. So welcome to the show, Dave. Well, thank you so much for having me. How are you today? You know, I'm great, and I'm on the West Coast, so I'm just fascinated by the East Coast, and, you know, you're in New York, and mm -hmm. and I've been to New York, and I know it's not the stereotype that all New Yorkers are rude. You know, I, everyone <laughs> I talked to was really friendly, and, you know, if I asked for directions, they stopped and went out of their way to help, but in, in this video, you know, you really, uh, you're going around the neighborhood in New York, and everyone you encounter is either on their cell phone, they're blocking your path. Uh, is that typical, or do you think it's just a reaction to, I don't know, cell phone culture, youth culture? I do think it's part and parcel of, of that culture, in addition to the fact that certainly in New York, perhaps other places, you know, everyone is very self-involved. You got to get somewhere. You've got to do something. What am I doing now? What? Who do I have to call? Everybody's very on a on a quick pace. And um, and I think sometimes, including myself, we become sort of self-possessed and forget like that there are other people necessarily trying to get through the door you're about to go through or so forth. And it seems like you had a lot of fun making the video. Like some of these things are like an annoyance. Sometimes it's just, you know, real rude behavior. But it seems like you also have a knack for letting a lot of this just slide off your back. Well, I appreciate that. It's uh, certainly a, I guess I'd say a lifelong endeavor to try to reach that status of letting things roll off my back. My dad's great at it. He's always said, let it roll off your back, Dave. And I've, I've actually had difficulty doing that. Well, I'm going to back up a little bit. So those in the know know that you're very multifaceted. You know, you've been at this doing not just, uh, I guess you call it indie pop. You know, there's so many ways to describe what you do, but to me, it really brings me back to the 80s when I think pop radio, you know, had Elvis Costello and so many fun, these power pop influences. So just take us back a little bit. Like when you first started out, who inspired you and, you know, what was your early career like? I appreciate that. Yes, there is something very special to me about, uh, on the whole, 20th century entertainment, but in particular, the influences of the 70s to 80s pop rock, even the 60s pop rock goes back to there, really. The Beatles, the Beach Boys, if you want to go earlier, Buddy Holly and doo-wop. Um, and, uh, and then from there, the Elvis Costello and the Attractions, XTC, Squeeze. That sort of clever, uh, somewhat experimental in the studio and adventurous lyrics pop rock, I guess you'd say. Um, led me to create what, you know, what we generally will call indie pop rock. Um, but I, my term for it is Jablamo pop, because you know what? <laughs> Great you, name. You come, thank you. You come up with your own word. You've got your own genre. This is what we've done. And um, 
Then you fill it in with the other variety vibe influences of last century from vaudeville through the sort of uh, Borscht Belt comic on television in the golden age of TV in the 60s as well, 70s. And uh, that, that really informs a lot of our sensibility here. I like that you mentioned Squeeze. I haven't thought of them in ages. I remember in the 80s on MTV, they had that one song like Hourglass. Oh, sure. That was, uh, go ahead. Yeah, and we just don't hear songs like that anymore. You know, that was the uh, first album I really got into. Uh, that was on Babylon and on. Um, again, a play on words, a fun sort of way. Um, and I, I saw like every tour Squeeze went on from that album through the 2000s. It's, uh, I'm a big fan. You know, funny enough, uh, the, the name of our band, The Sound of Monday, is inspired from a Squeeze lyric um, and a song called Sunday Street off the play album i think it was 1991 but uh, it was a lyric in a song the sound of monday and stuck with me so there's your squeeze influence as well well the name sound of monday it conjures up almost a little depression like oh no you know you hear the traffic you got to go back to work <laughs> well you know i'm a i'm an iconoclastic fellow you know and um and i think that uh you know initially when i heard it in the I, it was the mid 90s, mid to late 90s, I was looking for a band name because I had declared to myself I was going to put a band together to play my original tunes. So then you have that daunting task of finding the right name. And around that time, I'd been listening a lot to that record. And that song, the lyric basically is about a guy who's going through his week and he goes to sleep Sunday night, puts, puts out the light, puts down the book wakes up to the sound of Monday outside. And yeah, there's something about that, that, that kind of, what can I say? I, I, it's uh, the iconoclast in me wants to try to change your perception of Mondays. You know, I'm not daunted by the, by the Monday drag. I like that. Well, on your website, besides saying indie pop, I like the term chamber pop. And I know you incorporate you know, like horns, a trumpet, you know, woodwinds, strings. And in our EDM world, you know, very electronic now. It's so refreshing to hear, I, I guess, what we'd call, you know, real or, or just, um, what do you call it? Almost classical instruments. Well, you know, the the, the pop rock that, that I was early, earliest inspired by, I mentioned the Beatles, the Beach Boys. You could argue that that, that was sort of the, the pop of its time and prior to that, you know, maybe centuries prior, but the classical music was its pop and that I think continued to inspire forward. And uh, so I appreciate your, <laughs> your appreciation of that. Uh, and I wanna be clear to our listeners who, who may not have got that, uh, it's chamber pop, not chamber pot. We must, we must make sure. <laughs> That's a very important distinction. Indeed. You know what else this just made me think of? And and you as a sophisticated New Yorker, this will probably be right up your alley. Like, remember Joe Jackson in the early '80s? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, you know that from that Look Sharp album. But then, like a lot of these artists, you know, I think, I, you know, I can't speak for them, but it seems to me that there was a a sensibility about trying to grow as an artist. And you you can take Joe Jackson as a great example, like the Beatles, just 
changing and maturing and squeeze did this quite well maturing as they, they did and and i think you know everyone who's notable or remembered usually innovates in a certain way i mean we all know how innovative the beach boys were and just how they were creating sounds you just had never heard on pop radio before yes yes i'm such i'm such a i yeah, it's, it's so heroic to me, the the way they went about that, and the Beatles as well. It's just, uh, it's fantastic to hear them talk about it. Well, another thing that sets you apart is you infuse everything with a sense of humor. So I think it makes sense when I read you were really influenced by the monkeys. Oh, boy, that was uh, the, the earliest influence I can remember was, uh, you know, I was a child of the 70s, and they would rerun the monkeys TV shows, which were, as you know, originated in the 60s. Uh, and when I saw these these guys who would write and play catchy pop rock music and put on costumes and act silly and funny, and then the girls chase them everywhere, I thought, you know, that's a good job. You know, that's a, <laughs> that's something uh, I would want to be of, uh, you know, all those kinds of things. And um, And then it was filled in with, as I mentioned, you know, the 70s, on television, it seemed that they were emulating that whole idea of vaudeville. There was variety. Today, everything seems, by contrast, you know, quite, quite, um, it's individual lane. You know, I don't feel like you get a lot of variety necessarily, or that it's, you know, sort of not highlighted. And for me, that's, that's kind of what it's all about. You'd have the pop rock guy, then you'd have Steve Martin come on, who, by the way, was very musical. Um, mm -hmm. and his comedy his stand-up comedy was a huge influence and Mel Brooks was a huge influence and he was very musical or is very musical as well. And, you know, a lot of these people, Peter Sellers and, um, who was recorded by George Martin, who recorded the Beatles. So there's a lot of intertwining there. Well, sure. And, and it makes me think of the Beatles again. And when they started out, they were fun and poppy and boppy and very quickly you know they went on this metaphysical trip and got a little more experimental which a lot of fans embraced but they also i think lost a lot of that early you know youthful almost you know humorous um maybe maybe just innocence yeah and i think like when the monkeys finally hit the scene maybe they brought back some of what the beatles had lost that's an interesting uh, uh, perspective. I, I get it. It's um, supposedly the monkeys were inspired by the Hard Day's Night film, which was, you know, 1964. And oh, yeah. um, so that that was that Beatles, that early effervescent, you know, um, Beatles that that the monkeys were emulated. I think that's a great point. Um, I was very fortunate, by the way, that uh, in the 70s, all of my babysitters who by then had grown to an age where the monkeys weren't cool anymore, gave me all their monkeys records so I could down every <laughs> single song in their catalog. Wow. So I, just to, you know, think of back in the day to have a stack of albums, you not only, you know, listen to them, you know, early binge listening with a stack of vinyl, but those great liner notes and just reading the album covers. Oh, yeah. Definitely. It was so great. I, the only thing I had to do to read those liner notes was, you know, read through the magic marker that said, Wendy loves Davy in magic marker. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, yes, it was, it was 
fascinating as all those old records, you know, even the records my parents had uh, in their collection, Trini Lopez live at PJs and, you know, uh, a lot, of, a lot of show tune stuff that they exposed me to as well. West Side Story and all of these liner notes. It was a real experience to your to your point. Well, one thing we had back then is this commonality, like when things were a little more limited, mm-hmm. you know, you would see like, you know, the West Side Story soundtrack in every home in America, you know, or the sound of music and there you know, or, you know, the Beatles white album. And nowadays things are so dispersed, you know, we don't have that commonality like everyone knows the same thing. You're you're speaking to my heart right now, Kelly. I'll tell you why, because I lament the fact that we now seem to lack uh, what you could call a cultural literacy, you know, um, that if, if, you know, when we were growing up, you know, our grandparents had handed down uh, everyone from... Uh, you knew the references. You knew about uh, Tom Sawyer, the book. You knew about, you know, you name the reference, like everything from Thomas Edison. Now it seems like the things that were handed down, well, somehow there's a disconnect. I, I, it really bothers me, to be honest. Well, here's the challenge with independent artists now. We've taken away the gatekeepers. You know, YouTube allows, you know, access that MTV promised, but, you know, we had to go through the gatekeepers to get on MTV. Now anyone can get on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And it's a mixed blessing because it's great to have the access, but we don't have the the concentrated, you know, audience that that that, that restriction used to give us. Yeah, that is true. That is true. But um I mean, I guess I can only say, you know, from an artist's perspective, I am appreciative of the opportunity that that provides and can only hope that uh, that I and the, the wonderful team that I uh, of people that I work with, uh, you know, from Mother West, uh, who's the record label, um, uh, Danny Weinkoff, who produced our work, um, hip uh, hip uh, video promotions I work with closely. Um, you know, you you can really build something as a team, you know, without that traditional route as well. And so I, I do lament the fact as you do. And in, in one sense, I get that. But, you know, of course, it gives me a whole set of new tools and, and opportunities as well. So it's a it's a double edged sword, right? Well, I don't think any of us would go back to that. Like back in the day, you would watch MTV all day, just hoping your favorite video would come on. Right. And now, you know, you can click a button, have instant access. So I don't think, you know, we'd want that access to be taken away. But at the same time, there was something special about, oh, my goodness, they're playing that Duran Duran video. (laughs) Yes, you're right. It was served up and now you can go on YouTube and watch that MTV uh, segment. I like that. The other thing I like about just modern access and YouTube is you can post anything, not just a music video, but you can just say hi to your fans or you can do a behind the scenes. And I think that really builds a relationship with your fans. Yes, excellent point. And I, you know, to your point a moment ago, I think, you know, we wouldn't want to go back because too, we're spoiled by this, uh, this wonderful uh, ability. We really are. And I think 
it's still relatively young, even though we've had this for quite some time. You know, uh, YouTube's only about what seventeen years old, so mm. part parts of this are still new. I mean, what direction do you think all this is going to go? Hmm. I'm picturing like a real Max Headroom type of. No, I don't know. Um, I'm not <laughs> really sure. You know, uh, it's. I mean, one would imagine that it would develop. Uh, you know, I mean, we we can sort of hope or guess, I should say, not even hope, but that it develops further along the line it's going of of more self-control. But, you know, then there's always those issues of, you know, others trying to control the content. And, you, you know, who knows which side will win out for different periods of time? I mean, who knows? I, I it's a uh, it's beyond me to uh, to guess. Uh, otherwise, I'd probably uh, be in a different line, you know. Of work. Well, well, speaking of YouTube, I don't know how you're, you're going to have to tell me. Uh, you got on the TV show The View, and Barbara Walters called you a YouTube sensation. <laughs> right. Very nice. Very nice. In fact, uh, for her, it was small, unmarked bills, as I recall. That's how she wanted it. <laughs> I, I'm, uh, I'm kidding, of course. But, um, well, that whole thing with The View came about quite by chance, just like a, a number of things in my in my life and career. Um, I don't know how far back to go. When I moved into the city, the, the, the view was in 2004. I moved into New York City in, two, in 1994. When I did, I set up my landline phone and there was a problem with crossed wires. And this woman who was a stranger to me kept trying to call the phone company to complain about her crossed wires. But instead of reaching the phone company because of her crossed wires, she kept reaching me. And this this businesswoman, and she and so she kept calling, and we kept having conversations. We became friendly. Fast forward to two thousand four. Now she knows my interests and this and that, and she's an avid watcher of The View. She calls me one day on my then cell phone and says, uh, "Hey, you know they're having an original song contest. You should enter." So, lo and behold, I I try to come up with something before the deadline. I have three weeks. Now two weeks, now one. I have this ba vague concept in mind of, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, because I, when I write songs, I often will write in concepts. I mean, even Hey and Considerate, the new single is, uh, was a concept first that I then filled in with, with the lyrics and ideas. But um, no different with this song with The View. I had this idea of, you know, a hot date with the ladies from The View. And then I just struggled to come up with it. Every time I, every time I picked up my guitar I got, and my lyrics, I couldn't. But then one day, three days before the deadline, I was walking down the street and the line occurred to me. You know, the opening line, actually. There's someone for everyone. This I already knew. Uh, but five someones who would have guessed it's the ladies from The View or something like that. And I sang it to myself. And as I'll often do is I left it on my voicemail. I called my home voicemail. I still have a landline, by the way. Old school all the way. Um, and uh, and then I just it, it all came out like five pages worth of, of lyrics. I had to pare down. I entered it just before the deadline. And unbelievably, they they called and said I was one of the final three and that they would be voting. And then three weeks later, I had won and was on The View. And uh, I can't tell you how nervous I was <laughs> knowing I was going <laughs> to appear, knowing I was going to appear in front of millions of people. Um, having just learned a song I just wrote 
and hoped I would remember it and so forth. There's even one point in there where I actually forget the lyrics and I just fill it with a, whoa, okay, kind of a Steve Martinism. And Barbara thankfully laughed at that moment, but but it was <laughs> an amazing, amazing experience. Uh, but that that's how it happened. Well, you're lucky you got on during the Barbara Walters era. Mm. So, so you could at least have, put on your resume that you could have a quote from Barbara. That is uh, that is definitely uh, I, I definitely feel that way because uh, she's a legend, and uh, I mean we grew up with the the humor of Saturday Night Live. I mean she was big enough to be featured as Baba Wawa, you know the old Gilda Radner character, <laughs> and um, so that we grew up knowing her that way. It's like she's that big. Because would you call her an iconic New Yorker? Oh yes, and that too, absolutely. Um, She's definitely uh, somebody you think of when you think of New York, um, the scene. I would imagine she was at Studio 54 <laughs> at some point. <laughs> Though like, it's hard to picture maybe now, but. Uh, uh, do, do you wish Do you wish you could have gotten on the David Letterman show while he was still on the air? I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I mean, you know, in particular, the early Lettermans had a huge impact on me. So, yes, I mean, he's a hero of mine. Um, but in particular, those 1980s programs where, you know, all those characters and the guy under the seats, Larry Bud Melman's appearances, Brother Theodore, um, you know, I, I actually got to attend some of those Letterman shows because in those days you could write to NBC through the postal mail, you know, the snail mail, as they call it, and they'll send you tickets two, four weeks later. Six weeks later, you get in your mailbox two tickets to the Letterman show. I grew up in New Jersey, so I was uh, about 30 minutes from the Lincoln Tunnel. Um, and so I could just go into the city. It was fantastic. Uh, yes, absolutely. One thing I liked about Letterman, especially, you know, back in the 80s, as opposed to The Tonight Show, he would take a chance on, I guess, artists that were considered a little less mainstream, like a lot of the music lineup. He'd be pretty progressive sometimes. Yes. Um, you know, I think uh, that's something also the early Saturday Night Live sometimes would uh, would also be willing to do. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, there was something fresh about that program. Letterman, and again, you know, I think Letterman took the torch in, in a figurative way of speaking uh, from Saturday Night Live. Um, you remember Saturday Night Live was 75 to 80 and Letterman's... Yeah show was sometime in the early 80s right 82 maybe the morning show preceded it mm -hmm. uh, so yeah yeah there's uh I, I spent a lot of late nights in junior high school and high school uh annoying my parents with the sound of the tv we, we lived in a particularly small house so you you balance two big things this indie pop career the sound of monday but you also have a really big career doing music for children <laughs> well yes um you know my whole career my life was was you know by the time i was six or seven years old i realized i just want to create music i want to create comedy i want to be a character actor and i've been pursuing these things ever since and they find you know unexpected lanes so when my niece was born in the mid 90s um for her first birthday party, my sister-in-law said, 
Uncle David, here's a list of kids songs. Learn them and play your niece's birthday party. You're a musician. So I learned these songs and the little kids that were there, it just seemed my sense of humor worked. It just worked. I, I riffed gags. I'm very improvisational and, uh, you know, on, on stage. And, and I just, um, it, it worked. And then in order to get more work to, to support myself, I just, uh, through nonprofit organizations, would, would work at children's hospitals or schools for children with special needs. And this material worked there and these places, and then at preschools, and then from there you book private parties, and it just happened by chance in that way. Mm -hmm. Well, see, now I can see why you like the monkeys, because that seems to bridge the gap between children's music and adult music, because I, I think like a group like the Beatles, they, they, they had quite the sensibility like even when they were being silly, there was a certain sophistication to it. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you know, I think it was it was very also, you could say, largely the times of the those days when, you know, children there was children's programming, but there was a lot less of it than than the huge focus it is today. And as everything is more segmented today, you brand towards children. But when I was growing up, it was, hey, the kids watched the adults. You know, I watched Jack Benny and I thought he was funny. You know, uh, I watched, um, you know, I guess, you know, the, the bridge that you're referring to with the monkeys. I think that there was some of that with the Beatles. You had Yellow Submarine with um, Schoolhouse Rock, which was um, a big predicate to some of the other material I've created. The Mother West released, for example, uh, the punctuation people, this schoolhouse rock-esque project where you basically personify the punctuation characters and sing and they're singing songs. And so schoolhouse rock was a bridge between the pop rock music of the time and teaching kids. You know, for me, it was always the banana splits. <laughs> One banana, two banana, three banana, four. <laughs> yes, I used to watch that uh, in reruns as well. I mean, they, all this stuff was absolutely, all of these things are great influences. I mean, you could say the Flintstones, which, you know, interestingly emulated Jackie Gleason and the Honeymooners. And there, there was a real um, connection of all these things. And so that cultural literacy we were talking about earlier, it just... Uh, Again, it's a, I, I don't get why it doesn't exist anymore. If, if there were any sort of a flag I could wave, it would be to bring back that sense of community that we that we had uh, back then. Wouldn't you agree? I would, and I think we really miss just pure pop music. And yeah. I do like EDM, and you know, I do like a lot of modern sounds. But there is a certain. Uh, I'd hate to say generic quality and not that all pop, you know, was masterpiece, but it seems like in that classic pop of the sixties, seventies, eighties, there is just something special and unique. Like there's so much personality to it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And you know, with, uh, you know, perhaps it's uh, by, by no means disrespect to anyone who, who cares to listen to EDM, but it, it's had no more an impact on me than Edie Gourmet, I guess. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Edie Gourmet, that's a blast from the past. Try telling that to uh, 
an 18 year old and, and look at the blank look on their face. Google it. G- Google it. But see, they would have to know how to spell it first. That would be the roadblock. <laughs> That's right. what, what's an ED gourmet? I don't know why I'm saying that that voice for kids, but anyway, or young people. But anyway, no, no, yeah, I, uh, I guess that's just a matter of that that pop rock, but you know it's funny because even though I did not particularly <laughs> listen to Edie Gourmet, that reference is actually more part and parcel of the times I grew up in that probably did have some influence. But electric dance music, not uh, not so. Although I hear some things in it when I do hear it, I'm like, oh, that that thing is cool, you know. But eh, where were we? But, well, what? I like that you, you know, brought up Edie Gourmet because that makes me think of like, you know, the classic variety shows and the talk shows of that era. And even though we have talk shows now and, you know, tons of stuff online. And again, it was that kind of thing of, oh, it was a big deal. You know, your favorite star was going to be on The Tonight Show. You had to tune in. Yeah. And, and it was more like, you know, an event when you saw your favorite people on TV. Yeah, God, oh boy, yeah, absolutely, and it was, um, yeah, they'd be on the cover of TV Guide that week for something big, and then appearing on these shows, and um, and as you know, we we could also say there were there were less of these shows, or at least at night, you know, when Carson was there, Carson was king, and and yeah, of course, I grew up with the sensibility of Letterman having a much bigger impact, but because in my case. You know, I grew up with a real appreciation of the, the 1950s and 60s, the golden age of television and, and those older performers who, who did them. Um, Carson really was important to me. It was a big deal. I actually would write to these people. I wrote to Carson and asked for an autograph and I got an autographed picture. I still prize it today. Um, you know, but uh, but yeah, th- these were these were monumental people for us uh and and unfortunately there's so many talk shows today um and they they don't approach entertainment the same way it's uh it's more more about what uh, the term i heard somewhere was clapter you know it's more not about <laughs> about laughter but if you can get like a then then somehow you're a success but it's like yeah but that wasn't funny you know yeah you know what it was about those old talk shows, like I, like I especially love like Merv Griffin, you know, but you just don't see anything like that now. Now people are so business conscious, like no one would go on a talk show now unless they're promoting something, a new record, a book, a movie. What I liked about the old days was people would just pop in on the talk show. They had nothing to promote and they would just hang out and talk with Merv Griffin. That's right. Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas. Mike and Douglas, yeah. That was a great show. Uh, Bob Einstein, the uh, late, great Super Dave uh, comedian, uh, told a wonderful, hilarious story about uh, the, <laughs> the Mike Douglas show. It's just uh, but because they'd have these variety of, of performers like that were totally unrelated in, you know, in fields. And, you know, you'd have like Sly from Sly and the Family Stone and somebody from the Ringling Brothers Circus. And then you'd have somebody from... Uh, you know, I think it was a game show host. He tells Peter Marshall. That's what he tells this great story. Anyway, um, yeah, yeah. These days, the, again, it's about the variety. It, you don't see it. And I think the variety is something, you know, we try to in the Sound of Monday to always imbue our 
you know, our work with, with that and appreciation for that. Yeah. And it's not to say that things weren't controversial back then. I mean, we had Dick Cavett. He would, I guess, try to push some buttons. Yeah. But, but it was just that nice era where the hosts were generally pretty nice to their guests. And maybe that's a little refreshing, especially when you went through like the Howard Stern of the, of the 80s and 90s. And, you know, things got a little shock jock radio and confrontational. It was kind of nice back in that era when everyone was nice to the talent. Yes. I mean, you know, it's it's a funny thing because, uh, you know, I was fortunate to meet Howard in the mid 80s, right before he got fired from WNBC. Um, my cousin had been a, a DJ of some renown in the 60s in New York. I was Jack Spector. He was a WMCA good guy. And by the mid 80s, he had a sports show on WNBC right after Howard's afternoon show. And, you know, Howard was ahead of the curve there in terms of the type of thing that's going on today. I mean, he's sort of, in a way, I think he fathered this uh, this sort of <laughs> inconsiderate notion, if you will, uh, to, to mm-hmm. coin our song. Uh, but, um, you know, but meeting him off, off the air, he was a perfectly down-to-earth, nice guy. I mean, he knew what he was doing. Um, yeah, he knew what he was doing. I think with Howard, he's a very good interviewer. I mean, I like hearing him interview people, but I've heard him more recently talk about, you know, some regrets he has mm. in, in how in things he's said to people on the show and putting people on the spot. I think if he started, you know, over again, I think his approach would be different now. Well, yeah, then one would have to say that I, I would take that just hearing it at face value. I would take it as maturity. And but if you had taken if he, he had to do all over again and he went through those same times and if he took that link out of who he was, would he have had the success he had? One could argue that maybe he wouldn't. It's like, you know, it's a, this is getting a little deep, but it's like if Kennedy hadn't been assassinated right before the Beatles came, would the Beatles have had the same impact? It's that, it's that kind of thing. You can't take one domino or one log out of the, the building. Very deep question, you know, uh, which could probably be... Uh... A Ken Burns miniseries, you know, is that is sacrificing, you know, who you are for fame worth yeah. it in the end? Yes. Hold on one second, Kelly. Uh, Trixie, get Ken Burns on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We're, uh, we're going to set up a call for later to see what we can do about that. Well, what was that movie? Uh, it was about Howard Hughes. I think was it a Martin Scorsese movie with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio? Oh, uh, the aviator, the aviator. Uh, what was the Howard Hughes? Oh, right, uh, right. Yes, that's right. He plays Howard Hughes. Um, I saw that somewhere along the line. It's vague, but, uh, yeah, well, Howard Hughes was uh, certainly want to talk about an iconic character of his day. Because a good example, someone who, you know, fame and fortune, but very miserable at the end of his life. Again, that's a reference that you, I, uh, people who grew up when we did would know, and you'd probably even picture uh, Kleenex boxes on his feet. But today you say Howard Hughes and no, it's a blank stare, right? 
Crazy. And no more Hughes Air West. Remember the big yellow airplanes? <laughs> Vaguely, except I think I saw them on black and white films, so I don't even know. <laughs> Didn't know that. You know, I got I got to fly on one. And here's one Wait. thing young people don't remember is when they'd push the big staircase out to the airplane. And you would enter the plane from the tarmac. Yes. Was that kind of exciting? I mean, the I didn't really get to do that because uh, I didn't fly for the first time until the mid '80s. But and it was I, I don't remember whether we did that actually, to be honest. But uh, yes, that 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 is a very exciting. I got to do that in Jamaica because it was a smaller plane, and we we actually did that. So yes, kind of. See, for your career, you know, you're a savvy New Yorker. You know, you've been where the action is. You know, I'm sure you've had opportunities where maybe you could have said, well, maybe that's not my thing, but it might push my career up a little faster. It seems like you've stuck to your guns and and followed your heart and really did what is sincere to you. Well, I, thank you for that, uh, for sharing that notion and, and uh, saying so. I, uh, I think there's truth in that. Um, I knew what I wanted to do from the time I was six or seven, and no one was going to stop me from doing it. My parents used to say, you know, you have to have a, something to fall back on. And I'd be like, don't ever say that to me. <laughs> they would say, they would remind me later that I used to say that to them. And, um, you know, obviously there are a lot of ups and downs and a lot more downs uh, than ups as, as time goes. And I've been lucky, like my father always used to say to me, you know, peaks and valleys, Dave, you know, you, you're going to have these long valleys, but you can't get too high on the peaks and you can't get too low in the valleys. And my dad, as I said earlier, is the kind of guy who could let things roll off his back. So it was a positive influence. But as my friend Nina reminds me when I'm in those valleys, she's like, Dave, you have something that a lot of people don't have. You have purpose. And um, it's easy to forget when you're kind of going through it, looking out your own eyes, not not looking in the mirror per se. And, uh, I've been very fortunate because, um, you know, I just can't quit. I just can't stop it. You know, I, I got to create something from nothing. And the, the mediums that seem to work best for me are, is that pop rock sensibility. The, the two, three minute song is a good for my attention span and, uh, and creating something that and, and the comedy part of it that, that really speaks to my influence, um, I, I've noticed, you know, in a good song that excites me, it'll take a left turn. And well, if you look at comedy, it also takes left turns, you know. It, also, the thing that they both have in common are word pictures, you know. The good comedy will create a, a funny word picture in your mind, but great imagery and music also can create a, an amazing word picture. So. I find there to be a lot of parallels between the two that keep me going. So would you like to be remembered as the modern day Ray Stevens? <laughs> wow, you know, here's a reference that I must confide. I don't really, I don't, I know the name Ray Stevens. Uh, learn me, can you learn me? About, I think he, he had that big novelty hit in the 70s called The Streak, about the streaking. <laughs> Well, I remember streaking. That was a big deal. I mean, people would, again, kids won't know what that means, but people would take off all their clothes and run through a football game or something, right? So security had to, unfortunate security, had to tackle them. Because uh, there was an era of kind of the humorous novelty song back in the 70s. Oh, yes. There was a big one when I was a little kid. 
uh, what, Jaws was a big Spielberg movie at that time, and somebody had put out a record where they're they're interviewing the 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 shark, and they use <laughs> shark answers with all the hit songs of the day. You know, why can't we be friends? Was one of the answers. You know, like I forgot who did it. And my my friend from first grade, David Kling, and I would sit there listening to this record, cackling. You know. Oh my gosh. Well, then there is the unintentionally funny songs because in the 60s and 70s, there are all these great story songs, you know, like Ode to Billy Joe. And but <laughs> I think one that became unintentionally funny, remember uh, Run Joey Run? No, now what again? Learn me Run Joey Run sounds like a golden book I had as a little one, you know. Oh, I think it was about this you know teenage girl and she was in love with this guy but her father didn't like him and i think <laughs> at the end there's some confrontation that that ends in death or something you like this tragic romeo and juliet story but it, it's kind of cheesy so it's kind of considered like uh unintentionally funny you know i know some songs like uh, i used to listen to a lot of those 1950s songs because as my aforementioned uh cousin was a dj and he then after the mca good guys jack specter would do these cbs you know classic you know 1950s classics and they'd play things like uh i think it was something like johnny and laura were lovers and it's this tragic story about he <laughs> dies in a car crash after giving his love to her and all these things yes very very um that that's what made a lot of the humor that came out of like this early saturday night live and letterman that that and even Howard Stern, you'd have to say, like that fresh sensibility was willing to really make fun of that serious. Oh, well, speaking of you had mentioned Steve Martin. Remember when on SNL he he did King Tut? Oh, yeah. There you go. There's another novelty hit that was huge hit of its day. Oh, yeah. Remember he performed it dressed in costume. It was almost like. He, he was like something out of like the Ten Commandments. He had that whole it, <laughs> pharaoh kind of look. <laughs> it, it's really, I mean, his sensibility really dovetailed well with their comedic sensibility. Um, and um, I became a huge, huge, um, you know, I was on a sketch comedy show in college and we were all very serious about comedy. And um, there was a book that came out at that time uh, in the 80s called... Uh, Saturday Night, the backstage history of Saturday Night, Night Live. And I devoured that book, read it several times, memorized things. And then I got an internship at Saturday Night Live in 1989 um, for six months. And I, and you know, Tom Schiller was there, Franken and Davis were there. These were original writers. And Schiller took me under his wing. We're friends to this day. Um, and Tom Davis also went out of his way to be really nice to me uh, over the years. And, um, Mike Myers and I had the same first day. I'm, I'm totally digressing and I apologize, but you're reminding me of this other very rich part of my life. Wow, that's impressive. Intern at SNL. I'm trying to think late 80s. Was that um, Joe Piscopo era? No, no. Uh, Joe was uh, in the earlier part of the 80s um, when Eddie Murphy was on. And later on, when it, I was there, it was 1989. So it was Phil Hartman was... You know, that amazing, what a what a tragedy with him. Dana Carvey, fantastic, such a nice guy. Dennis Miller, um, you know, Kevin Nealon, uh, Jan Hooks. Oh, wow. 
Victoria Jackson. Um, I'm sure I'm leaving a few people out. Um, John Lovitz, of course. And um, Mike Myers and I had the same first day at the show, and they kept confusing us because of the reddish hair. So it was uh, <laughs> funny. A-, A. Whitney Brown kept confusing us. But, uh, um, oh, uh, so it's just a couple years before Wayne's World and all that. Well, I was there for the first Wayne's World sketch, actually, and got to hear it in the read-through. Uh-huh. The Wednesday before the actual show, uh, they would all sit in one big room to read all the sketches that had been written in the first few days. And Wayne's World, I got to hear that. And um, yeah, yeah, it was actually, it was, it was funny. It was good, you know. Mike, Mike was a very down-to-earth, rather quiet, nice guy. Um, you know, I could, I, these, a lot of these guys were approachable, though I was told, you know, it was rather hierarchical. And I was told by my boss, uh, Mike Shoemaker, who's like, you know, don't talk to the stars, don't talk to the writers, don't talk to the celebrities, and we won't have a problem. <laughs> so, wow. Don't, don't get me wrong. He was a very nice guy. He was also very nice to me. And even over the years, we, we, when we'd speak periodically, he was always very nice and inviting. But uh, these were the rules. Wow. Well, that's a, a big dose of New York lore. Oh, yeah. So, well... Before we wrap up here, got going to have a few more questions, but uh, how can people find you online? What What is your favorite social media? Well, thank you. Of course, uh, we have our website, thesoundofmonday.com. And, uh, you know, we're, we're on youtube.com slash thesoundofmonday, instagram.com slash thesoundofmonday, and facebook.com slash thesoundofmonday for the somewhat older folk <laughs> <laughs> who dig, the, dig all the references we just uh, 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 referred to. Um, and, of course, Spotify is a very big one for us. We're very, very fortunate to have an amazing listenership on Spotify and Apple Music. It's The Sound of Monday. Uh, we had a hit with a single we re- released in 2013. It's a cover of the Spider-Man theme. And to date, it has over 5 million streams worldwide. And so... Uh, wow. We've been releasing stuff and people have been, it's been growing. We have about 50,000 listeners a month on Spotify and uh, 20 some odd thousand a week on Apple. So we, we, uh, we're very grateful. Well, excellent. So you have an EP coming out around October called Quick Ear Warmer. Yes, um, Quick Ear Warmer, it's a four song EP. The first single, as we may have mentioned, is Hey and Consider It. The video is out now and the single is out on the platforms we mentioned. But also The Keeper of the Mood will be coming out sometime between now and the what is planned to be the October 11th release of Quick Ear Warmer. On October 11th, it's a Tuesday at 7 p.m. The band is going to be playing live in New York City at Rockwood Music Hall. And that's... Uh, down in East Village, um, and uh, no cover. Come on down. Let us uh, entertain you, and we'll have a great time. Excellent. Well, final question here. I mean, we could talk for days. I could pick your brain about New York forever. Well, uh, but, but but I just want to, <laughs> and and uh, you know, talk about music. But um, one thing I love about New York is you you can be walking down the street and just bump into people. Like, who, who are the most interesting, notable people you've bumped into in New York? Wow. Um, you know, a number of people come to mind. I, uh, in the 90s, I w- was walking in the, in the village, and suddenly before me was Richard Dawson, the original hotel. 
the original host of Family Feud. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. and, and, and of uh, Hogan's Heroes fame. Oh, as that's well. right. Of course. I mean, you know what? Uh, that as well. And um, and he asked me for directions to the Bowery. He was with this uh, lovely blonde, this young blonde, I remember. And I ran into Rick Ocasek a couple years ago, the front man from the Cars. Um, yeah. And got to tell him how much I appreciated, grew up on his music. Uh, um, I'm sure there are others I, that, uh, you know, and I met a bunch of people through the internship at Saturday Night Live that I have stories about. And, you know, I, I know you have to have other people, but I'd be delighted to speak with you further about all of these things uh, at your convenience. Well, and finally, I'll give you the last word here. You know, you've done so much. You've you know, gone through several decades of inspirations. Uh, what keeps it fresh for you? You know, why is, you know, this single, Hey, Inconsiderate, you know, such a joy for you? And, and what, what keeps you going musically nowadays? Well, uh, I guess I can say that, uh, you know, inspiration comes from everywhere. And uh, with, specific, uh, with specific reference to Hey, Inconsiderate, it's a song that, was inspired by uh, a real life inconsideration that happened to me on a New York City subway in the 90s. And I wrote the song, and when we got to produce the EP that's coming out uh, in October, key, uh, Quick Ear Warmer, um, it was produced by uh, Danny Weinkoff, the bass player from They Might Be Giants. And uh, he really turned it into this, this, this thing. I, I'm digressing, so forgive me, but basically, um, you know, I have unfinished business to, be, to get right to the heart of the matter. I, uh, I have to have more success than I have now. And, and we're, we're on a journey from here to Yesville. And we're going to get there with, uh, with, with the interest of those who also can't stand the inconsiderations of other people and love the pop rock and comedic sensibilities we talked about. Well, his name is Dave J. Gerstein. The band is The Sound of Monday, the current single, Hey, Inconsiderate, from the upcoming EP, Quick Ear Warmer. Have so much enjoyed you sharing all this. Just appreciate your perspective. And hopefully when new music comes out, uh, we can talk again. Well, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to speak with you, Kelly. It's been a real blast. And uh, you have a great day. And I'll talk with you when you'd like. <laughs>